Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Passion, Part 2, recorded in May 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. So essentially, the, it, it's, you, know, you could interpret this as a loss of nerve, really. I mean, we know it's not the people who did this, it's the, the, the leaders who try to instigate them, you know, answer this way. So it shows they're fickle and weak-willed, perhaps. It also maybe even mirrors the response of Jesus' own family and hometown earlier in the Gospel. Remember when, his, when his, his relatives come and try to silence him so that he won't proclaim the good news? Back in chapter 3, uh, they say, don't listen to this guy, he's crazy. Essentially, they, 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 try, they try to disassociate anything that he's said. And when he, goes, when he comes to his hometown, they say, you know, get lost. Why? It, it, surely it's not that they suddenly hate their relative. It's because if they say, yeah, we're with this guy, what is Herod Antipas going to do to them? Send in the troops, right? What does Assad do if you don't support him? This is how the Gentiles rule in both cases. They rule through terror, through the threat of terror, so that the, those who should ideally support the authentic leader, Jesus, are cowed into, by fear into disowning that person. This is just one way of reading. It's not the normal way it's read, but I'm suggesting it's a way that, that fits very well into the overall architecture and plot of the story. Anyway, Jesus is led off to crucifixion. Before, they have to, they, they have to uh, beat him up a bit. And uh, the significance of this is not the beating up, but the mockery that they are, they dress him up, right, as a, a mock king, which is all part of the irony, right? The whole notion of the Son of Man as the one who expresses God's victory through defeat, strength through suffering, and so on, is that reality is not as it seems, and those who are on the wrong side of history don't know it. So everything that happens to Jesus is also ironic, because the Romans don't really think that he's, that he's a king, but they are mockingly treating him as such, indicating that everything that's happening, the crucifixion is an enthronement. It's the moment that, that is to lead to the recognition of his power. Well, again, remember that, that the, uh, the, the, the suffering righteous guy on the, uh, uh, in Psalm 22, his salvation from suffering, the effect of that is that the nations will turn, the Gentiles will turn and, and actually recognize the God of Israel as the one who is truly sovereign. So in a sense, they're, they're, they're doing it without knowing it. So he's led off to, to, to the cross. Um, someone named Simon, who's not Simon Peter, carries the cross for him. If anyone would follow me and become my disciples, let them take up their cross and follow me. Even you, Peter, even you, Simon, he says in the garden, will, uh, will deny me, will betray me along with all the others. You'll fall away. You'll be scandalized by me. No, I won't, he says. Well, and here's exactly where he should have been, right? And ironically, it's someone named Simon. James and John said, let us sit at your right and your left hand in your glory, which they thought the glorious enthronement of the Messiah when we, when we exact regime change on the bad people in charge. Uh, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, but they say, we'll do it anyway. Uh, well, who was at his right and his left hand on the cross? Not James and John, but two brigands, you know, two people identified again with that anti-Roman whole thing. 
the crucifixion scene draws attention, sort of telescopes our attention to characters, minor characters even, who are exactly where the, the 12 ought to be had they been successful, right? Had they actually been a type four personality, according to the parable of the sower, who embrace the gospel and are not scandalized, they don't fall away when push comes to shove. So in a sense, the whole passion narrative is often, is also underscoring the failure of the 12. And these particular stand-ins, Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross and the two brigands hanging at his right and left hand, those are precisely the images that were invoked by Peter at the beginning of the journey narrative. You know, no, you're not going to there to die. You're going to go to be victorious in Jerusalem. And that's right where Jesus has taken my cross if you want to be with me. And at the end of the journey narrative, when James and John talk about the right and the left hand, that's the same imagery that comes up in the crucifixion scene. So this is all part of the architecture of the story. This is why Mark focuses on what he does. Now, there are other details of the crucifixion, which may well be historical, but they also fit very nicely into Psalm 22, the notion of dividing the garments, uh, the notion of being naked as a result. All these terminology, it all comes from Psalm 22. It all plays into this this scenario, again, as we talked about, the one who is complaining to God about uh, about how he is in distress and how God ultimately saves him and how the effect of that saving will turn all the nations to God's rule. There's a lot of allusions to that here. There's also, of course, the wine that is offered and refused at the beginning, right? I will not drink this, the fruit of the vine, again until the kingdom is here, right? So we know we're not in the kingdom yet. What else do we have here in the crucifixion scene that is of note? We have the onlookers. What do the onlookers say? Uh, everyone, not just the Romans, mock him. We're told that those passing by uh, shook their heads saying, ha, you who are about to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. It's interesting that the, uh, the verb tense here is a present tense. You who are destroying the temple, literally. And we know that the theme of the temple's destruction and the destruction of Jesus' body are related because the hour of those two events is related, right, by the last stuff that we read last week. Well, here the theme of the temple's destruction emerges again. And again, the chief priests pipe in, you know, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the anointed one, the king of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Then we get the Elijah theme, the misunderstanding theme. Jesus cries out in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and Eli, or Eloi, as it's sometimes pronounced in the Greek, Eli means my God. Uh, but it's also the first two syllables of Eliahu, Elijah's name. So they mishear him as saying he's calling for Elijah, i.e. they don't believe that Elijah has come yet to prepare the way for God's kingdom. And the very fact that they say that indicates that they didn't know who John was, and therefore they don't know who Jesus is. Then it says Jesus in verse 37, chapter 15, gives a loud cry and breathed his last. Now the loud cry that he gives, this the verb in Greek is very specific. The only other time it appears in the gospel is in verse 3 of the first chapter. Behold, I'm sending my messenger before me to before you to prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make str- uh, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That that verb boao to cry out is used here as Jesus's last words. So here it's clear that Jesus too is the messenger. He is performing the role of the messenger, crying out. And we don't know what he's crying out here, but he's crying out and he breathes his last. Literally, the verb in Greek is he gives up his spirit. And again, I think we've talked about this before. Talk about the mirror image again of the beginning and the end of the gospel. His baptism is his death. His death 
is a baptism. At his baptism, the, the, the heavens tear apart, the spirit enters into him, and a voice speaks, you are my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. At his death, something tears in two, as we'll see. The spirit leaves him that came to him at his baptism, and someone declares, truly, this was God's son. Only now it's not a heavenly voice, but an earthly voice. In fact, the voice of his executioner. Now, what is the missing piece to this parallel here? Now, we know that the two are parallel because back in chapter 10, at the end of the journey, the climax of the journey where he's trying to get his disciples to understand, that's where he says, James and John, you may sit at my right and left hands if you can be baptized with my baptism and if you can drink the cup that I drink. Well, there he's identifying his baptism through the cup with his death. So that key scene, chapter 10, 35 to 45, basically. That is what links the baptism and the death as the same event, or at least his death is already implied in his response to God's call to him at his baptism, and it is fulfilled at that moment. So baptism is dying and rising with Christ, as Paul teaches us. Right? It is participating in this, this vocation of the Messiah. That's why Vatican II calls us the Messianic people. As a community, we seek to continue and and extend the vocation of Jesus in the world to participate in who Jesus is through the body of Christ, but it is through baptism that we are integrated into that destiny. Here we have the death and the baptism brought together very clearly. Well, what is the event uh, that causes this, or at least that correlates with this? It is the tearing of the temple curtain. Now, what is the temple curtain? Well, we have two curtains. Mark doesn't say. Theoretically, it could be either of them. And which one it is will affect how you understand this portentous event. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus identifies his body with the sanctuary. At the very beginning, John's telling of the temple incident, Jesus identifies his body, or at least the, the, the evangelist says that's what he was talking about. He was talking about the sanctuary of his body. So we know that for John who doesn't have this event, by the way. There's no tearing of the curtain in John's gospel. Nevertheless, John sees Jesus' body as the temple itself. So if the temple curtain is ripped, is as though the presence of God is being revealed to the world. That's very much John's interpretation of Jesus' death. Uh, because for John, this is it. This is when it's all fulfilled. The revelation is complete at this moment. The kingdom of God, if, it, if that was a theme in John, would be there. But for Mark, we don't really have a development of that idea. Of uh, I mean, we have this idea that, that there's going to be a destruction of the temple and a destruction of Jesus' body, but it's unclear how they're woven together. Let's explore the other, the other option, that it's the external curtain of the temple that's being torn in two. Well, that would explain, perhaps, why the centurion took a second take when Jesus died. If Jesus died like everyone else, there would be no reason to say, surely this was God's son, unless he had some special insight which is possible, I suppose, but let's just assume he doesn't have any special insight. Let's just assume he's basing this on what he sees. We're told it's when he saw how Jesus died. Well, let's assume we don't actually know where Golgotha was. We have traditions about where it was, but let's assume that Golgotha is in a line of sight with the front of the temple, and that temple curtain rips at the moment that Jesus cries out, and then he gives up the spirit. Well, then the Roman centurion can put two and two together. Something was... A bit supernatural about this death. Something was superhuman about this death. Something about this death correlated with that. But what does it mean that the temple curtain rips? Well, here Josephus might help us out a little bit, our historian, who gives a a detailed description of the temple and its curtains. Josephus claims that the external curtain 
was not uh, just a blank sheet. It was actually a ornately designed tapestry that was arranged so that it, it symbolized and represented the entire cosmos, the heavens. Well, what tore at Jesus' baptism? The heavens. What tears at Jesus' death on this interpretation? The representation of the heavens. Well, um, again, what does it mean? It's very difficult to, to, to know because Mark doesn't say. My interpretation, based on the way that I read everything that happens in the temple earlier on, is I think that this is in line with Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. In my reading of what happens in the temple, that it's not actually a cleansing, as is, uh, as is probably what happened historically, that he thought he was cleansing the temple. Rather, Mark juxtaposes this story about cursing a fig tree. The fig tree is a representation of Jerusalem. He curses it. He says, if you want this mountain to fall into the sea, Mount Zion that I'm pointing at, it can be done. He's already talked about destroying the temple. He's already pronounced a curse that caused the tree to wither symbolically. And perhaps this is simply the working out of that. Indeed, Jesus' words were effective. The temple is indeed slated for destruction. Now, again, John, the evangelist John, will have nothing of this because for John, the temple is an essential symbol of what Jesus is. There's nothing, no reason Jesus would curse it or destroy it or anything like that. But in Mark, again, we have to remember, um, Jesus is not just a Old Testament-style prophet who rails against uh, the, the corrupt leadership in Jerusalem. He is also the, uh, the representation of a community who has experienced the actual destruction of this temple by the Romans for whom this event means not the rule of God, but the rule of Rome, the rule of the Gentiles. And we know that that can't be according to Jesus' message. So if Jesus is the one who effectively destroys the temple, then the Roman victory is not really a victory. So the irony goes both ways. Jesus' defeat is not really a defeat, says Mark, just as Rome's victory is not really a victory. Jesus reigns as a result of this action, not the Caesar. Jesus, not Rome, nor Rome's gods, reigns as a result of this. That's the good news for Mark's community. I want to focus on the centurion here. What is exactly the meaning and the tone that we are to understand in this statement, truly this was God's son? Is this yet another example of Roman mockery? They've certainly been mocking him up to this point. Every Roman who appeared in the narrative was mocking him as king. Could this just be another example of that? Or is this guy really serious? In the end, I don't think it matters because everything, all the responses of the human characters are ironic. Whether they know it or not, they're speaking a truth. Well, what is the truth that is being spoken here? It's not just the truth that we now know, because we as the readers have known all along since his baptism who he is. He's the son of God. We know this, so it's not a surprise to us. What's novel about this is that there's a character in the story who now knows it, right? You cannot understand who Jesus is except if you view how he dies. But there's more to it than that, because this man is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. He is a Gentile who, mockingly or not, acknowledges God's rule by acknowledging that this was God's son. Even more pertinent, probably, to this theme of a conflict of kingdoms, a conflict of sovereignties, which is the, the story of the Old Testament, God versus the nations, God versus Pharaoh, God versus whoever the bad guy is. This is not just a Gentile. This is a Gentile soldier, allegiant in battle to Caesar, the, the office uh, whose occupant would destroy the temple later on, who, who would claim to destroy God's kingdom. No, this is a, a soldier who, whose allegiance has changed. 
which is ultimately what the meaning of repent, change your mind and believe in the gospel, said Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 15. Here is someone who has changed his mind and declared allegiance. So there we have, again, the fulfillment of Psalm 22. The nations will see, they will recognize that true sovereignty lies with the God of Israel, and they'll see that this is indeed God's son. Crucifixion scene fades away now. The women have been watching from a distance. The 12 are nowhere to be seen, but the women have been watching from a distance. We're not sure whether they heard any of this, but they eventually come up with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. They collect the corpse. Pilate grants them the corpse. They bury it in a tomb, and they, they rest on the Sabbath. After the Sabbath, the women return, as we know, to anoint the body, to prepare the body, the, basically embalm the body. And uh, what do they find? They find uh, a stone that has been rolled away. What do they find inside the tomb? They do not find Jesus. They find a young man with no name. He is simply a young man. Uh, Let's look at Mark's description of him. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, or even the right hand, you could say. Well, this is strange. That's not something they expected to see. And of course, what does this man do? He proclaims a message. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's been raised. He's not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So here we have, finally, our messenger. John was a messenger. He was silenced. When he was silenced, Jesus became a messenger. When Jesus was silenced, giving his last cry or even actually before that, at the moment he enters into his passion in the garden, another messenger appears. Although he's not a messenger at that moment, he's a young man who appears suddenly at the beginning of Jesus' passion and appears suddenly at the end of it as a messenger. He declares the good news, the good news that this was not the defeat of the good news of God. This is the victory, or the turning point, let's say. The turning point, the victorious turning point, God's victory is assured by Jesus' resurrection. This is my message, he says. So so John the Baptist, Jesus, young man. Women? Well, he's just commissioned the women as messengers, has he not? Go and tell. And we're told in verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That is where Mark's gospel ends. That is where the earliest uh, surviving version of Mark's gospel ends. Or, you know, maybe... There was a longer ending that got lost, but that's where it ends in the manuscripts that we have. I don't remember whether it was Jerome or Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, uh, wrote in a letter in the 4th century. He says that uh, almost all reliable manuscripts of Mark end in chapter 16, verse 8. The other versions, which have longer endings, are not original. That's a church father saying that in in the 4th century AD. Now, there are longer endings of Mark that the tradition has attached to the gospel, probably because this is not a, a very edifying ending to many people, but they're not original. So we need to abuse, disabuse ourselves of our expectations because Mark is a master of surprise. And let's see how this ending could actually fit within the architecture of the story that we've been mapping out for the past eight weeks or so. John becomes a messenger. Jesus becomes a messenger. The young man becomes a messenger. The women fail to become messengers. The relay race has been aborted. Will it continue? First of all, let's talk about the young man. Is this the same man, the same young man, 
uh, who was in the garden at the beginning of Jesus's passion. Again, I guess we can't know for sure, but it doesn't matter because in the architecture of the story, they are mirror images of one another. What was the young man in the garden wearing? Nothing except a sheet, right? Which was quickly removed, right? He lost his sheet. What's this man wearing in the tomb? Is he naked? He's clothed. He's clothed in a white robe. There's only one other person in the gospel who's clothed in a white robe. That's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He looks like Jesus. Naked, clothed. What was Jesus on the cross? Was he naked? Yeah. At his moment of passion, at his moment of powerlessness, his powerlessness is expressed through his nakedness. Contrast the Mount of Transfiguration where he appears in his glory, robed in glowing white robes. This young man looks like Jesus in the garden and in the tomb, only in a sort of reversal. In the garden, uh, he was running away. Here, he's standing his ground. Despite the fear that the women manifest, he boldly proclaims the good news. Alone, except for the Gerasene demoniac who does this earlier on in the gospel, he's the only person who tells. He's commanded to tell and tells. So this really is the same person, effectively. But let's raise the question, okay? If, if he told the message, the message that only he could know because he's seated at the right hand, remember James and John, let us sit at your right and your left hand in your glory? Well, that's what this actually says in the Greek. It doesn't say he was sitting on the right hand of the tomb. It says he was sitting at the right hand. Of what? Well, the readers will hear... We heard that expression before, and it was all about Jesus being in his glory. Well, here's where James and John wanted to be, but they didn't because they missed the boat. Here is the nameless disciple who got the boat, or somehow has mysteriously got it right, who has internalized in his own experience of loss and powerlessness to empowerment. He has experienced what Jesus has experienced somehow. He has participated in the passion. It's a mystery, literally, because we don't see what happens between his flight into the the night and his reappearance in the tomb. It's mysterious. But uh, he sure looks like someone who's been baptized. Because the early church, when you were baptized, you took your clothing, you ripped it off, you stamped on it, indicating the, 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 the giving up of your old life, the death of the, your death to the life of sin. You were drowned in the waters of baptism, which signifies the death of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, dying with Jesus. When you brought out, you're clad in white robes, right? Now we have robes all the way through. This is a baptized person. This is a symbol of baptism. And what better way to conclude the story, which began with the baptism of Jesus? Jesus is the baptized one who is called to inaugurate God's kingdom. And here is the baptized one who is commissioned to carry on the task. It's not by accident that the young man appears and reappears where he does. It's part of the architecture. Okay, so he tells the women. The women tell no one, according to Mark. But um, let's, let's presume that this is the original ending. They were afraid, and they, tell, they told nothing to no one. End of story. What could be the meaning of that? Why end the story there? The whole story is about the chain of transmission of the good news, the authority to proclaim, the authority to do what Jesus does, or, you know, John, Jesus, the young man, and so on. Uh, And that relay race has been aborted, seemingly. Well, who is left to tell? The young man's already done his job, at least for the moment. He's told. The women don't tell. Who's left? 
the reader is the only one who's left. We are those who are left. This is not an accidental ending. It's not a deficient ending. It's not defective. It's the whole point. Mark has systematically, through his narrative, removed any pretense that anyone else in the story can be trusted or that you can, in the sense that you can rely on that, you know, they got it right. We don't need to bother with this. It's their job, you know. No, it's, it's, it's our job. This is the, the gospel of evangelism, if you will. It draws us into the story by excluding everyone else from the story. The message has been given. Will we pick it up? Will we pick up the baton and become the messenger? Well, that's an empowering ending. I mean, it, 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 it's an awesome ending because we realize the burden that is placed upon us, upon everyone who is baptized. That's why this is the gospel of baptism. This is all about baptism. If you wanted to, if you wanted to speculate, who is this written for? It's written for the baptized. It's written for those who have undergone what the young man has undergone and are being explained by the whole story of Jesus. But now, what it means to be baptized, what's your responsibility now to be the messenger? The kingdom of God is not yet here in power. The business of proclaiming is unfinished. The Son of Man will return in power, but we're not there yet. He did not drink the wine. We're not there yet. Our mission is to be the messengers. Isn't that great? Isn't that exciting? It, it's it's like a it's like a, a, a Zen slap in the face, you know. <laughs> it's it's the, the it's the most powerful possible way to end the story of Jesus by making it about us now. Will we respond? And then we go all the way back to chapter four, the parable of the sower, the four different possible responses. Which one will we be? Will we be the good soil that responds and multiplies the yield? This is the question. There is an historical context in which you have to frame all of this uh, in terms of the destruction of the temple, uh, you know, the, the politics of the time. Uh, but there's also a sacramental dimension, which is not it's not unrelated to that. It's actually intertwined with it because it's intertwined precisely when Jesus, during his journey, explains what people must do to be his disciples. At the beginning of the journey, he speaks of taking up the cross to follow him, to participate in what in his death and resurrection. At the end of the journey, be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, if you want to follow me. The young man represents the person who has done that, who has, who has experienced that ordeal and is now open to the workings of the Holy Spirit. Where will you lead me? And that's where the beginning of the gospel, which is how Mark's story says this is the beginning of that. This is where the beginning of the gospel ends. The beginning ends with us. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.